Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. I want to talk about some of your other uh, books for people who might not remember you from five years ago. You are as as bizarre as Robert Ripley, and that take it take that as a compliment. By the way, I do absolutely. What the, what got you into the weird and unusual? Uh, you know, I, I've loved I've loved it just really since I was a kid. I used to uh, I used to watch Ripley's Believe It or Not actually all the time when I was a kid, and uh, and I used to love buying the Guinness Book of World Records when it was just sort of the small thick paperback book, yep, um, black and white. And I just read that first section with the human oddities, and I I was just incredibly fascinated by Robert Wadlow. And every year there'd be like some different pictures, you know. You didn't have the internet or anything like that to go look up stuff. So I I check out the new images of Robert Wadlow, and I was just so fascinated by this man who grew to be eight feet eleven and a half inches tall. And you know I'd see him at, <laughs> at my age at that time when he was ten years old, and he'd be seven feet tall or whatever it was. And I just thought it was incredible, and so. Uh, so I always loved how the human body could just be so unique and different and people could thrive in all different kinds of ways. Um, so that just kind of got me into the world of Sideshow and and uh, seeing what people could do um, with all kinds of different human anomalies. Absolutely. When I was uh, in my early days of television news in Detroit, my nickname, Mark, was Captain Bazaar because I had all these weird stories that I'd look for and put on our newscasts. And that's what they gave me. They, they they coined the phrase. Here's Captain Bazaar, and uh, that's great. I had that moniker for years and years and years. And uh, a lot of the things that you have done are somewhat strange and bizarre, but they're fascinating, aren't they? Absolutely. Yeah, I I, I completely think they're just incredible stories. The one that was really strange and bizarre was the book called "The Embalmed Head of Oliver Cromwell." Tell <laughs> tell me about that. Yeah, that, so that was a story I came across. I was actually looking to do a book about adventures of, of posh, posthumous adventures of body parts. Um, so d- just different kinds of body parts that lived on, like Galileo's fingers, you know, what happened with those, and they're on display now in Florence, Italy. Um, and as I was researching and jotting down notes, I came across Oliver Cromwell's embalmed head. And, and the story was just so remarkable that I, I scratched the whole other idea and I decided to write the memoirs of this head. And so basically, in a nutshell, what happened was Oliver Cromwell, who was the Lord Protector of England, Ireland, and Scotland in the mid-1600s, during the English Civil War, he led the charge to have Charles I beheaded, um, took over, so he ended the monarchy. And, uh, and then when he died um, in the mid-1600s, he was embalmed, and he was buried in Westminster Abbey. He was then exhumed a few years later uh, when Charles II restored the monarchy. So he exhumed the body, he hanged him, and beheaded him, and stuck this embalmed head atop of Westminster Hall. And it sat there for 25 years, you know, on this wooden pike, you know, with a, a iron tip going through his, his skull. And it finally broke off in a storm one night, and it fell to the ground, and a, a guard picked it up and took it home. And from there, it just kind of got passed around uh, for the next, well, for, for, at that point, for the next 275 years. So the head basically traveled around England, this embalmed head, for 300 years until it was reburied in 1960. So the book tells the story of those travels from the head's perspective. Interesting take on that. Of all the stories you've looked at for all your books, and how many books do you have out now, Mark? Six. And that includes the big book of Mars? Correct. Of all the stories you've got out there that you've had over the years, which one would you say is one of the most bizarre 
Well, the Cromwell head story is definitely up there. That, that's me. that's a strange one. That's right. And the, and the other one that I really love is the one that got me started on Mars, which was uh, about a guy in the 1920s. He was a London lawyer, and he was in telepathic communication, so we said, with a Martian woman named Umaruru. And when I stumbled across this story, I got so fascinated. Um, and I really wasn't like a space guy or a Mars guy. Not that I didn't like it, but it just wasn't really something I spent much time with. Right. But when I came across this story, I got so fascinated and I dug into it. And along the way, I kind of learned all these other stories going on. And that's, that's what kind of led to the book. That's fascinating. Now, tell me about this Martian woman. I mean, was this, did he actually believe he was in communications with somebody like that? Yes. So this was about 1926, maybe a little bit earlier when he started, and he believed he was telepathically communicating with this woman. Again, her name was Umaruru, and she was about seven feet tall. She had big ears, tall hair, kind of like Marge Simpson. There's a sketch of her. Yeah. <laughs> this is how I know this. Um, huh. Or at least, you know, so he says, right? And she described Mars in quite a bit of detail for him, saying how how peaceful it was there, and that they did a lot of things like we did here. They have houses, they drove vehicles, they, they smoked pipes and drank tea, um, but they were very peaceful people, and they were more advanced. And the men were much taller. They were maybe seven to eight, maybe nine feet tall. Um, and so she was communicating with him, and then he wanted to try to reach the Martians with the, a radio tower, with a, a telegram. So at that time, the largest radio tower in the world, the most powerful, was in London. It was called the Rugby Radio Tower, and it ran through the post office. And so he decided he would send uh, a telegram to Mars when it was in opposition, meaning that when Mars was closest right. to Earth in its orbit. So that would be about 35 million miles away. So we thought, okay, that's a distance maybe we can reach them with our wavelengths and get a communication in a, at some kind of timely manner. So he arranged it, and he got the long-distance rate, from the post office, which I thought was kind of funny. I think the post office, I have memos in the book from the post office talking about this guy, and like, he seems perfectly sane. <laughs> well, this guy was, a, he was some kind of doctor, wasn't he? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but he, he strongly believed in this. So, so the post office was okay with it. They didn't think he was a crazy man or anything. They thought that he truly believed this, and it was his study, and, and, and it was also a way for them to promote their long-distance rates. <laughs> which was kind of, I thought, amusing for them. Yeah. So they sent out this telegram late one night in 1926, and, and this was reported in all these newspapers around the world. You know, like New York Times was covering this story. It wasn't just some weird one-off type of thing. It's, this was big news. Um, and, of course, you know, they didn't hear anything back. And, and he heard from Umaruru telepathically that, you know, they were scientists were up there waiting. You know, they were waiting for their message, and they didn't get it, and they were laughing at our own scientists thinking that we just didn't have enough smarts to send a proper wavelength, and we were behind. And so he was upset by that. So we tried again two years later, when Mars was once again in opposition, and still he had no luck. So again, he was disappointed, and Umaruru told him, like, just go to sleep and don't worry about it. Uh, we'll keep telepathically talking to each other. And his wife, in the meantime, was annoyed by the whole thing. She's like, I don't know who this woman is, and I'm sick of hearing it. I won't uh, uh, yeah, en enough of having this person come in in our room at night, right? Yeah. So the whole thing is just completely shocking to me as I'm reading all these articles and finding out this story. And, and by the way, a few years after that, Umaruru had him open a college of telepathy because she thought telepathy would solve all of her problems. One of those problems being that the telephones weren't so great back then, so you wouldn't get busy signals right. operators having to deal with stuff. So it would really clear up a lot of issues.
Um, that didn't work out too well either. But along the way, so as I'm learning about that and finding how this is also surprising to me that this could be major news and why, you know, why would he believe this to be true and why would anyone else believe this to be a possibility? But as I'm studying this and learning more, I'm finding out how, how many other scientists and, and legitimate scientists, big names, Harvard professors, you know, heads of astronomy at various universities, and of course, you know, the, the smartest people on Earth, Tesla, Marconi, have a, a strong belief in intelligent life on Mars, and we're trying to reach Mars. So for this guy to have thought that maybe he had a way, maybe it wasn't quite as strange in context of what was going on at the time. That's amazing. But uh, there were, you're right, a lot of people thought that there were things happening on Mars. I think a lot of the frenzy started when Percival uh, Lowell uh, thinks that he found those canals on Mars, right? Yeah, so Lowell was, he was a big big proponent of it. He lectured and he wrote tons of articles and wrote books on it. And so what, what happened with him was he got the idea from uh, Giovanni Schiaparelli, an, an Italian astronomer, right. who found these, these lines, a whole network of lines on Mars through his telescope in 1877. And he called them canali, um, which really translated to channels, which could just be a natural occurrence. But it got mistranslated to canals, which was a whole different story because canals are artificially made. And at the time, roughly around that time, um, you know, we had just finished the Suez Canal, which took about 10 years to build, and that was a major engineering feat. So scientists are looking at this whole planet covered in canals, and they're thinking, oh, my God, it took us 10 years to build the Suez Canal with our greatest engineering you know, feats. And here you have a whole planet covered in them. These guys must be... They're so all over the advanced. place, yeah. You know, huge, strong, you know, so they were kind of blown away by all this. And so Percival Lowell, he had always been into astronomy. And, uh, it, you know, he came from a very wealthy family. He ran a textile business. Um, so he was sort of, you know, expected to take over that business for the family, but he, he wasn't interested. So he had gone away, did some studying in, in Asia, learned about, you know, Asian culture and, and got sort of involved in that. And when he came back in the early 1890s, Scaparelli was starting to go blind. Um, he wasn't going to be able to continue his studies. And so Lowell thinks, well, here's a chance for me to sort of have Scaparelli pass the torch to me. I can make my name as a Lowell, not by textiles, but by talking to Martians. I can be the guy who does that so, or, or you know, finds them or makes that first contact with Martians. So he's got the money to do it. and He's got the desire to do it. So he moves out from his, his home in Massachusetts to Arizona, to Flagstaff, Arizona, where he was sent scouts out to find the perfect location. And there he found a mountain where he could build an observatory about 7,000 feet in elevation, which would be completely away from, from any city lights, anything like that, any interference, um, to make his, his observations a lot cleaner and more visible. Um, so he was able to do that and built that as, as observatory in 1894. And from there, he just started sketching all the canals tons of sketches of the canals and the, the various lines and how they were changing over time or coming back through different seasons. Um, and like I said, lecturing about this and, and theorizing about what was going on. And his main theory was that the planet, because it was an older planet, he believed it was so far advanced that it was now a dying planet. And so the canals were trying to uh, distribute water from the polar caps all across the planet to help save these Martians. And clearly, he you could see these canals in that era with telescopes, right? 
Yeah, I mean, you could see these these lines on Mars, but you know, it's really later they figured out that this was really just an optical illusion. Um, anything you look at so far away, you know, can become a straight line, even though it might not really be a straight line. I think it was liquid water. I think liquid water was flowing on Mars, and they just never knew it. <laughs> well, we'll find that soon, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's that's cool. Well, so as you keyed in on, on the, and by the way, you're not kidding. This is a big book. It weighs about 40 pounds, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of information. How long did it take you to do? Um, I spent, I guess, about about a year uh, researching, writing. That's not places. bad. That's not bad, but it's pretty intense once you got into it. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, especially, you know, talking with various scientists at NASA and hearing all their their plans and challenges was, was really quite fascinating. Tell me about the Orson Welles broadcast of 1938, because you think something else happened afterwards. Yeah, well, so a few things with that. So one is... You know, that's a story that, that I always knew about. And I think, I think most people are pretty much aware that that's the thing that happened in America. You know, the, the panic um, with everybody believing that Martians were really invading Earth when Orson Welles did his War of the Worlds broadcast um, on October 30th. And, and they apparently these people missed the disclaimer at the top of the show, right? Yeah, yeah, they tuned in late. I think most people were probably listening to Charlie McCarthy, the ventriloquist, or the ventriloquism dummy, I should say, and Edgar Bergen, his ventriloquist. And I, I'm so fascinated. That's a, by the by way, the way that's a pretty good act to be able to do that on the radio as I a ventriloquist. Just say that. <laughs> I love that the ventriloquist could be, be a hit on radio. I mean, I don't know how that worked, but good for him. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah, like you said, people tuned in late and they missed it. And Orson Welles, you know, he's such a genius with the way he put it together and repackaged the H.G. Wells novel to, to play into America and to work with the medium by having all these interruptions, these news alerts, um, during a, a, you know, orchestra broadcast. You know, that he That's made. right. Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's beautifully crafted. Um, and, you know, radio's still fairly new. You also have World War II brewing over in Europe. That's so right. Of, and it's believable to people. Yes, it, all these breakthroughs are, first of all, aren't surprising because there were emergency breakthroughs happening. And then everything we were just chatting about with these these headlines about intelligent life on Mars, you know, Tesla, Marconi, um, Umaruru, you know, all these, all these different stories flowing around for, for decades. And so people probably weren't that shocked to hear that maybe something was finally happening, you know, having missed the disclaimer and not being familiar enough with the H.G. Wells novel, apparently, either. So, so they panicked. Um, so to me, it was very interesting to, to sort of get a better sense of the context of what was going on at that time to see why people may have you know, fled their homes um, and, you know, ran for their lives and, you know, volunteered to help the police fight the Martians and whatever they could do. So, and, and some jumped off buildings and stuff, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. I mean, people did all kinds of really crazy things. It was a true, a true panic. Um, so, so what's really amazing to me is, uh, you know, you, you would think that after that happened and everyone got clarified on what happened, you know, like, oh, this was just a radio show. And, and by the way, Orson Welles made the announcement a few times throughout, but they just kept missing it or they were too busy running for their lives to hear exactly. a later announcement. So you would think that something like that wouldn't happen again because that was pretty crazy. Um, and I think, uh, I think the FCC put some laws in place, too, about, like, not trying to fake radio broadcast or anything like that anymore. But it happened again 11 years later, which I found really surprising, um, in Quito, Ecuador. 
so this was a small, you know, small town in Ecuador, and a couple radio DJs decided they needed to drum up some, some uh, publicity or attention for their station. So they thought, hey, we should do that War of the Worlds thing. So they did it all over again. So they did it again, and they did it. So first of all, they didn't at least have the courtesy that that Wells did to say it was a dramatization. They just did it, oh. and like Wells, they made it local. So now it was the Martians were attacking a, a nearby village, and they had people impersonating like the local mayor, um, you know, priests. So they had all these characters playing like locals, you know, freaking out, wow. terrified. And so people again, they panicked. They thought it was real. Um, the police were were rushing out to this village. I forgot the name of the village, but they were rushing out to the village where the Martians were supposedly attacking to help. So they were gone. And then once people found out, uh, I think they finally announced, like, hey, by the way, you know, this, is, this isn't this is real. And so once people found out, they got so angry. And so they, they banded together as a mob, and they rioted at the radio station. Oh, they attacked them. Oh, my they God. Them, and they started, like, throwing fire, um, and they set the station on fire. And because it was such a huge crowd, the fire department couldn't get there. They couldn't get through the crowd in time. Oh. Fifteen people ended up dying. Fifteen? What happened to those DJs? Um, I think one of them ended up fleeing the country, and I think the other went to prison, if I remember correctly. Yeah, their career. Those were career enders for them, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern, and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.